Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's Tuesday, September 7th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast which is based on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. Today we talk to Josh Tarangel. Josh began his career as a music critic at Time Magazine. He quickly advanced to become deputy managing editor under the then editor, Walter Isaacson. In 2009, he became editor of Business Week, which Bloomberg had just acquired, and from there was promoted to oversee Bloomberg Television News. After that, he joined Vice, where he launched Vice News Tonight as executive producer in 2016. Today, Josh serves as executive producer at Eden Productions, working exclusively with Apple TV. Our discussion focuses on the arc of his career and the future of media. Here we go. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You've had a uh, remarkable career. Tell us first about Time Magazine. It's all but disappeared from the media landscape, I guess. What was it like in its heyday? I mean, it was imperial. And and I say that, you know, I'll start physically. The headquarters was the Time Life building. You had three floors of an avenue block. And I arrived there in 1999 at a moment when the magazine made $100 million in profit. And I could walk around these three huge floors where everybody had an office and a sub office. And I I had no idea what at least a third of the staff did. (laughs) The magazine had, you know, like 200 pages a week. And the magazine was in some ways a death star. It just, you know, there were three people writing about uh, religion full time. The bureaus in the world were huge. We're always getting a file from someplace. At the same time, as a consumer, you know, I was 27 years old, there was already dissonance. You know, it was right at the beginning of this new century. And I thought, this is incredible. I'm glad to be here. I can't believe they're paying me to do this job. I don't really use the product the way maybe they presume everybody else in the world does. And so I had this really interesting kind of double experience of, on the one hand, there is no greater legacy media than Time Magazine. There just isn't. And you can learn a lot, both about the craft of journalism and about the business of journalism by being there. But, you know, I was definitely young enough to get most of my news digitally, even then, to experience lots of different publications. And here, most of the leadership at time thought, no, no, it's not news until we print it and send it out in the mail and you read it three days later. And so it was 
fascinating. Um, and I spent nine years, 364 days there. And I did pretty much every job from, you know, writing the obituaries to start the milestones page, to being a reporter, to being a, a foreign correspondent, to music criticism. I, I got to see every part of the animal. Mm-hmm. So it was a great place to be raised. But everything that we are currently experiencing, the signals were there. Right. And if you just paid a little bit of attention, you could pick it up. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of September 11. So I wanted to ask you what it was like to work at Time Magazine on that particular day and the immediate aftermath. You know, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about it because we live in this fanatically impatient news environment. And on that day, I showed up to work I looked down 6th Avenue and you could see the buildings on fire. It just happened. I went into the news meeting and Jim Kelly, who was the editor, said, folks, this may turn out to be the story of our lives. Just go report it and come back as soon as you can. The subways were already down. So I sprinted and got down to two or three blocks away from Ground Zero Hmm. and just filled my notebook. I spoke to people covered in ash people who just could not articulate anything about what they'd seen and were in shock. Uh, I saw some incredible things in the sense of just the human spirit and generosity. Um, You know, I, I certainly recall cops being so overwhelmed by what the moment was and how, just how small they felt. That instead of communicating with the uniform and trying to impress authority, I actually saw all these interactions where cops would speak with their eyes and put their arms around people. So I filled my notebook and then I went back and uh, typed it up about seven o'clock. And Nancy Gibbs, who is now up at Harvard teaching journalism, she took files from what must have been 50, 60 people and overnight wrote what I think still stands as one of the best pieces of deadline journalism I've ever seen with poetry and beautiful lines and thoughtfulness and a perspective that actually holds up today, which is shocking. Mm hmm. You know, I've been thinking a lot about that moment for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that process, which was not infallible, definitely worked on that day. And I can only imagine if everybody was rushing to judgment around what was going on in those events, how different that day would have been. Right. So nine years and 364 days later, you find yourself walking out of the building. What were you walking into? Well, I had been... uh, Impatient, which is one of the hallmarks <laughs> of my career. I got the opportunity to compete for the job of being the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Bloomberg had purchased Business Week for, I think, $5 million, which was probably $4,999,000 <laughs> they needed to pay for it. And, you know, it was a good lesson. I just did the work. My goal was that a business audience wants to be flattered just as much as everybody else. And if they open a magazine that's supposedly for them and it's boring them to tears, well, <laughs> what does that say about them as right. people? Right. So I thought, no, these stories are interesting. And the people who are in business are funny and can take a joke about themselves. Um, but also there's a consumer product here that's necessary, which is something comprehensive. Right. So that if you really do read it, you know, The Economist is the perfect model of this. You're kind of caught up for a while, at least for a week. Then from the Business Week perch, you sort of took over the whole thing. The television being sort of, I hate the phrase, but the most public facing. When you walked into that job, what did you find at the TV network? Yeah, and this was not a job that I, I had been chasing. 
But it was one of those things where, you know, I, I did have a television background originally. I worked at MTV and produced not just MTV News, but some of the choose or lose things that they did. And I think that they liked Business Week. They liked the sensibility. And television at Bloomberg had always been very one note. It was it was kind of radio with television cameras. Right. So I came in and I had a theory of the case and I did what I usually do, which is think it through, write it down and present it to the leadership there. And they liked it and they thought, oh, yeah, this does need a refresher. It does need a design. Why don't you invest in the look and feel of things? Why don't you look at all of the innovations that are being made? Things like PTI on ESPN, where it's, just, it's about people who actually like each other talking as opposed to <laughs> putting stuff on screen that you know just people are just reading. Everything went down. Mike then came back to the company, which was a big surprise to everybody. And I told him what I thought TV should be. And he took it on board. And then he did what every owner has the right to do, which is change his mind. Right. He likes his television to be a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I'm, I, you know, literally, I'm not going to fight City Hall. It's <laughs> fighting City Hall. It, it, it's called Bloomberg Television. He's going to get what he wants. We came to a really nice conversation about what I should do, how I should leave the place, how we should leave Bloomberg Television. I think that I, I still have the sizzle reel which I will right. share with you and you only, John, of what uh, it was going to look like. Uh -huh. And I look at that every once in a while and think, yeah, I think that really would have worked. But, it, you know, I, I harbor no ill will. It's his company. He could go whatever direction he wants. Yeah, so you kind of worked out how you would leave Bloomberg. And then you joined Vice to launch Vice News Tonight, which ran on HBO. Did you know that you were going to Vice right away? Or were you going to take some time off after the Bloomberg experience? I was originally going to take some time off, and Richard Plepler, who I'd known for a long time when I was at Time Warner, he and I had been discussing a couple of different ideas, one of which was I thought at the time that 60 Minutes was sort of a ripe opportunity, right. that um, it had begun to fall out of step with its story selection, that its talent was aging. That is a big white elephant to go chase, but I thought that's what we're here for. Right. And then he did a deal with Shane Smith Advice to take their weekly show and make it nightly. Mm -hmm. And I think Shane and Richard both saw me as an appropriate margin call on that right. deal. Right. You know, both of them were very open with me in the, in the recruitment process that, you know, the company's called Vice. Right. Uh, and the other company's called HBO, which is a division <laughs> of Time Warner. Right. If you get one thing wrong, one thing, this deal is fucking over. Right. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so it was not what I'd intended, but um, Shane is a, is a world-class salesman. Richard is a world-class salesman. And it's, it's very rare somebody comes to you and says, hey, uh, want to reinvent nightly news on our watch? Let's try it. And in the reinvention of the nightly newscast, tell us how you went about that. I, I mean, some of it was very similar to what I've done before, which is just look at what the current product is. And so I watched some of the network nightly news and I thought, just jumped out the window. What the hell is this? I mean, literally, what the hell is this? This is right. like, I, I, I don't understand this. Um, the sort of structure around the anchor, you know, every story starts the same with the same bad writing and the same two-second sound up, and it's inefficient, right? right? Like, if I actually wanted this content in two minutes of reading online, I right. would be equally as well-informed. Right. So you need a half an hour of my time, and I have to deal with all your terrible cliches and this. Some of it was just like, okay, we could do better. And there was a decision early on just that an anchor is a bad signal. Even by then, when I was taking over in 2015, there was no single person, any 
diverse group of Americans trust. Right. That just doesn't exist. So a lot of it was built on this, this sort of skepticism of mediation. And can we get the reporters out of the way of the role of being a mediator between the story and the audience as quickly as possible? Right. And they should appear only when needed. So that was one precept. The other was just that most of what our competition was doing were studio shows because talk is cheap. And Shane, to his credit, was willing to invest almost all of the money HBO gave him into getting cameras out into places nobody else was interested in going. And when you don't have ad breaks, you know, a story doesn't need to be two minutes. It doesn't need to be four minutes. If you build up this relationship with your audience, which we did very successfully, you know, some nights they'll give you the license to do 22 minutes on one story because that's the only thing that fucking matters. And so we built it. It was harrowing. It was the most difficult project of my career by far. After a couple months on the air, you know, the audience number was pretty solid. And then we sort of had a proof of concept in Charlottesville, which was I trusted a reporter named Ellie Reeve who said, listen, something unique is about to happen, which is that a, an online hate movement is about to jump into real life. And I think we need to be there for this. And I said, yes, that's what we're here for. She's a very good reporter. She had great access. We sent two crews, you know, Friday night, I believe of that weekend was the Tiki Torch rally. Saturday morning was the counter rally. I knew that something fairly big was happening down there. By Sunday night, the footage was back in Williamsburg. I went into the office with an editor. We cut down four hours into 32 minutes. Monday morning, Ellie deployed to the secret hotel room of the organizer of the rally. And Monday night, we put on a 25-minute episode of everything that happened inside the alt-right, which presaged everything that is going on inside QAnon and lots of other movements. So that was, you know, just an incredibly gratifying experience that does not happen without some real risk-taking from Shane and Richard. Right. Now you're working with Richard on documentaries for Apple TV. Richard landed with Apple, and he's got a great deal. Um, They basically are paying Richard for his taste. And so I run the documentary side of Richard's business, and we're in production currently on three things that'll come out in 22. And they're good. Uh, I'm excited by them. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Josh Terangel. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to News Items. I'm here with Josh Tarangel. 
So you've been around. Let's let's talk big picture here. You've been around all parts of the media business, given where we're at at the present moment and where we think we're going. What survives, and what do you think doesn't survive? Ah, man. I mean, I think the New York Times has built themselves a nice berm around their business. Right. And some of it may be luck, but a lot of it was really smart management and risk taking. And I think they're very well set up for the next. 10 to 15 years mm-hmm. and they've managed to their credit to diversify the business without diluting it you know none right. of their opt-in projects are crappy they're all good right so tons of credit to them you know in the news game i see certain substack emails that i'm very impressed with and that i think really serve a purpose in my life there are certain podcasts that have really worked their way into my life but what i'm interested in just from a sort of business perspective is like you know, there's one resource throughout the history of time that has always been fairly finite, and that's just talent. You know, distribution changes, and you can make hay for a while by being in the right place at the right time with a new platform, by jumping in front of distribution in the right way. But um, most stuff's just not good because most people just aren't super talents. And so, super talents and where they go is what I'm watching. And so, a lot of my friends who I think of as super talented, are weighing these questions about, can I get the distribution and the pay and the audience that I want? Because in our business in particular, these are irrational actors, right? Nobody would go into this business if you were a rational actor. And so they're swayed mostly by audience, which is why you're seeing some people go to Facebook, go to Substack. Will those people be in the business for long? My hunch is no. For all of the noise out there about all of these new platforms and all this new distribution, like, look, Matt Iglesias is real smart. If it was a newsletter, if it was a Times column, if it was a podcast, he'd probably do just fine, right? right. I don't know if that's true for 99% of other people playing at this game right now. So it, it's a little confusing, but I'm always just going to bet on the most talented people. Are you going to bet on news items? I'm going to bet on news items because I use it. <laughs> um, and that, look, honestly... The tyranny of my morning inbox is a fucking nightmare. When I open it up, I get so many emails from so many places that I optimistically thought, no, this is the one I'm going to need. And in the end, just as I was saying, it comes down to a handful of people who actually speak to me and know how to distill things. So that kind of concision really helps me. And I do think that that sort of smart aggregation which was going to be a big thing. In the end, it turns out there's only a handful of smart aggregators and they're people. They're not products. Right, right. Talent aside, is bias sort of a precondition for business success in sort of big journalism or what's your take on that? I mean, I think we're all sophisticated people. And so we know that bias is a thing, but that bias has many different shades, right? Right. So, Ideological bias, as we've seen at MSNBC, as we've seen at Fox, and I would say undeniably at this point at the Times and the Post, it can sure help you in the short term. But the bias that I'm most interested in is story bias. Like, are you biased toward simplicity? Are you biased toward complexity? Are you biased toward length? I no longer believe that a journalist must be objective to be successful because we've all seen that the journalists who don't call out bullshit are a problem. Right. But taste is a form of bias. And so I think if you have good taste, if your story selection is smart, 
that can be just as important as having an ideological bias that helps you appeal to a certain group of people. So I don't think you have to pick a side. I think you have to pick a lane, Right. but those are different things. How long do you think it is before big tech just swallows it all up? <laughs> well, it's happened in Hollywood, right? I yeah, mean, no, that's Apple TV. That's who you're working for, right? Apple TV, Amazon, Netflix is probably the friendliest space of technology swallowing content, mm-hmm. and at least to a consumer. This is where I do give the Times credit, is that I think that they certainly had their perilous moment when they were paying Carlos Slim 14% on an annual basis. Yeah. That probably didn't feel too good. But what they've been able to do is onboard enough technology so that the experience is pretty seamless. They're never going to be a tech-first company. Right. But now the technology doesn't get in the way of the content, and that's right. important. So I also think in dealing with these tech companies over the years, it's easier to swallow entertainment because you can say, we're not doing a Uyghur documentary. Right. Like Amazon's not going to make that mistake. Whereas news, even though many of the people who run those companies are avid news consumers and will privately tell you how much they rely on your guts to tell them what's going on in the world, you know, you can't be selective with news. It always gets you into trouble. Either the reporting is bad or you take a reputational hit. So I think that they're going to keep arm's length with news. Right. Which gives me tremendous hope because if they decided to subsume it, it would be a nightmare for the Republic. That would be the end, right? It really would be. I wanted to ask about two things that have gotten a lot of attention. Uh, One is podcasting. Too many chasing too few hours. What's your take on podcasting? Or is it just a talent thing? Uh, Yeah, I think it's a ratio thing, right? Right. There are certain people whose talent is for that kind of storytelling or that kind of locution. You know, Bill Simmons is a good example where he came up writing a column that had voice that was very different to everybody who came before him. And he did that for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And then he exhausted himself. But that voice translates very well. And he's really gotten better at it. And his podcast, one of the top podcasts in the country. He's talented. There are many, many people talking about exactly what he's talking about right? Everybody can can take the sports story of the day and go with it. He has talent. I think the narrative podcasting world is a bubble. There's only so many true crime podcasts people are going to put up with. There's only so many revisitations of different stories. I will say, I think a good example of the kind of talent I'm talking about is a podcast called You're Wrong About, which is two people in their 30s who are revisiting what, you know, for me and for you is history that we lived through, but to them is a kind of like cold document. And so they did a five-part series on Princess Diana's life. Uh-huh. They did not live much of Princess Diana's life. Right. And so I, I went along for the ride with them and I knew a lot of it, but I found the freshness of their relationship to be a thing that I know why that podcast is a big hit. It's because right. those two people together have charisma and right. a spark and something special. I think nine out of 10 podcasts just don't have it. And so the fact that a business has sprung up because you think pre-roll is you know, a nice advertising product and because it's much easier and cheaper to produce audio than it is video, that's fine. It doesn't change the fact that most people aren't good at it. Yeah. In terms of stories about the latest in science and tech, um, you know, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, that sort of thing, where do you turn to for the best information about that? Well, I, I'm not trying to flatter you, but you lead me to most of my reading on it. That's okay. You can flatter me all you want. Okay. Well, you lead me to most of my reading on it. The truth is that there are very few people who 
read widely and aggregate widely there. And because there's no singular publication that manages to integrate biotech, AI, quantum, machine learning, technology is still this monolith and nobody's really brought it to life. You have to go to a lot of places, but it's an opportunity for sure. There is no great general interest science publication. Look, I read Stat News. I read a lot of the things that have sprung up to plug the leak, but I don't see that thing out there. Yeah. And, and I would say the only other white space that springs to mind like that is education. You know, if you're, if you're seeking out information on health, there's probably a pretty important reason that you are doing so. There's right. interest, but you probably have a vested interest. Right. And the same goes for education, where as policy, sure, it's interesting. But when it's your kid, it's more than interesting. And so I I think those are vulnerable places for readers. And I've yet to see anybody spring up and say, well, we'll take that problem off your hands. All right, that's it for us. Thank you very much for doing it, Josh. And we'll talk soon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell. Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was Ben McNamara. Tune in tomorrow for my interview with Carnegie Mellon's Priyadanti, a computational science fellow with the Department of Energy and a co-founder of Climate Change AI. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.